When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, it's Josh from Under the Table Hot Sauce. I'm here with my friend, the star of the show, Jimmy Farrow. Yeah, what's up, JB? Nah, nothing. It's been a hot summer, and for all your barbecue needs, you can go to UndertheTableHotSauce.com. 13 unique flavors to choose from, created and bottled in a Long Island kitchen. UndertheTableHotSauce.com. Let's go chow, JB. Let's do it. All the flavor, twice the burn. Elm Logistics, for all your logistic needs, call 631-299-3595. That's 631-299-3595. Elm Global Logistics, pride, performance, and partnerships. It's fake news. Hello, this old Atlas there flexing the gun, letting people know that Tony's still going to the gym. I'm still pumping the iron, baby. I threw my back out the other day, but everything is good. I feel good. I got my my, my partner here, Larry the Hillbilly, uh, Huntley, you know, with uh, North Atlantic Wrestling Association, a guy that do a lot of great work up here in the good state of Maine. You know, we do a lot of great shows. In fact, we got one coming up pretty soon. I don't want to give y'all the date because the show going to be over. By the time I finish doing this conversation, I just belt because I'm sitting there having my my protein drink. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Protein. I have my protein drink, if y'all, if y'all can believe this. But, you know, over the years, we did a lot of, uh, I did a lot of talking about, you know, my trips uh, on the road. Well, there was a lot of people over the year that I tag team with. And uh, when I first started off, I, I, I never liked teams. You know, I got on the basketball team uh, when I was in school. And the coach told us, I want all of y'all kids to go home, get a good night's sleep, and come back all rested up and everything. Well, 
I, went, I did what the coach said. I went to the YMCA. I had a job at the YMCA that uh, I would keep the weight room clean. So when people leave weights on the bar, I go pick them up. People throw trash on the floor, I go pick up the trash. So I was mainly the maintenance man for the weight room. He put me in charge of the weight room, you know, which was, you know, where where I like to be during that day. And I was coming home one night, and I saw half of the people that was on my basketball team, they was out drinking. They had a bottle of, of, of wine. And back in them days, I, I can't say it too well, a ripper, ripper. Oh, was, ripple? Ripper. You remember that? It was a, a cheap wine. And that's why I hear about I've it. heard of it. I've done it. Yeah, yeah, it was cheap as hell. It give you diarrhea like you got through drinking it. I mean, what? <laughs> old cheap wine. Hey, Tony, we're two minutes in. We're already talking about caca. <laughs> well, this is probably going to be a shitty conversation anyway. So, anyway... <laughs> The guy was out drinking wine and everything and, and, and smoking. The next day, the coach said, oh, I know y'all ready for this team. This team is, is not as good. It's not the best team uh, uh, in the area. Y'all going to whoop this team easy where the team whooped us. Because half of the, the guys, they got tired. Halfway through the game, they were sucking wind. So I remember the coach coming back uh, later on, and he said, if all y'all guys could run up and down that basketball court like Tony Atlas did, I like Tony White. I was Tony White then. I'm so used to calling myself Tony Atlas. I, I do it all the time. He said, if all y'all have ran up and down that, that court and have the energy that Tony White had, we probably would have won this game because y'all but a team with this. Y'all should have won. What? But they didn't listen, listen to the coach. So I always had a thing about tag team because one thing about a tag team, if your partner lose, you lose. If your partner mess up, it mess up uh, uh, the whole team. But when you're by yourself, you didn't have to worry about that, you know, uh, when you're by yourself. You know, you, you're responsible for yourself. You didn't have to depend on nobody else. But fortunately for me, I had had some tag team partners uh, in the past that uh, was good uh, good tag team partner. I won a lot of championship with uh, with, with uh, some of the people. And uh, Larry got a list of some of the people I'm going to talk about. He's going to give me the first guy, that the first tag team guy. He's not my first tag team partner. No, you know, I'd uh, say we start with the most famous tag team you were in. Not necessarily the most famous tag team partner. Right. But the most famous tag team you were in. And that would have to be with Rocky Johnson. Exactly. Exactly. You know, me and Rocky Johnson, we were fortunate enough to be the first black world uh, tag team champion. You know, when I first met Rocky, it was in Florida. And uh, Rocky, uh, I wanted to quit. I don't know if I told y'all this before. I wanted to quit the business because I, you know, it was just too much. I mean, the hardest part of wrestling in the olden days was the traveling. I mean, you got up in the morning, you hit the gym at, at 7 a.m., you get back to your apartment or your hotel room by 9 o'clock, grab, uh, 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 grab some breakfast, and then by 11 or 12, you were traveling to your show. Now, sometimes you had a 200-mile trip, Sometimes you had a 300-mile trip. Sometimes you got lucky and you only had 100 miles to drive. But you had to get in your car. You had to travel to the town. The shows in the old days started at 8 o'clock. So at 8 o'clock, you have to uh, 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 be at in you know at the building. Really, you have to be at the building an hour before the show. If the show starts at 8 and you show up at 7.01, you are late. So most of the boys would try to be in the dress room at least by 6.30 or 6.45 because at 7, they have a guy to go around with a little pad. And your, everybody's name is on the pad that's supposed to be on that car. And everybody that's in the dress room, when you open that door, he put a little check beside your name. Now, if you're not in that dress room when that guy checked your name, you can walk right through the door as soon as he checks his list. You're late. So being prompt was one of the number one things about... Uh, uh, about you know in wrestling in them days that you definitely you definitely have to be very very prompt because otherwise the promoter can't put the show together he's worrying about you and 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 you just messed up everything just just by being late. The best ability is dependability. That's right. That's right. Now say that again, Larry. The best ability is dependability. Dependability. And you know to be believe it or not, Larry, only Anderson used to say that all day. Say you could be the best wrestler in the world. You could draw me more money than any wrestler ever drew me. You could whoop every wrestler in the dressing room. But if I can't depend on you, I can't use you. 
I can't use you. But anyway, get back to me and Rocket Johnson. Over the years, me and Rocket, we got along sometimes good, sometimes not too good. And the reason for that is because for the first time in wrestling history, they put two main event wrestlers. And in the older days, there's going to be one black wrestler on top. There's going to be one Oriental wrestler on top. There's going to be only one Italian wrestler on top. There's going to be one Spanish, Puerto Rican or Mexican or, you know, what, on top. That's why when Chief J. Strongbow was the top Indian, couldn't nobody, couldn't no other Indian, they could come in the territory, but they had to work beneath, uh, uh, beneath Chief Strongbow. Well, when I went to, to Georgia, when I first started my career, there was a wrestler by the name of Rufus R. Freight Train Junk. And he was the top wrestler when I first started, black wrestler in the territory. When I went to Georgia, the top black wrestler in the territory was Thunderbolt Patterson. When I went to Florida, the top black wrestler in the territory was Rocket Johnson. And that I was for many, many years. Then they decided to take two top wrestlers, two top guys, and put them together to, to make a tag team. Now, Rocket later told me that people hear a story about me and Rocket, where Rocket used to leave me at the hotel. Well, he did. You know, I'm not knocking the guy. He did. You know, he would drop he dropped me off one time in Connecticut. And uh I'm sitting at the hotel waiting for him. He said, I'll be back to pick you up. We we had to go from Hartford, Connecticut to uh I didn't know, I'm sorry. We had to go from New Haven, Connecticut to Hartford, Connecticut. That's about a about a forty five minute to a forty five minute drive. So I'm sitting at the hotel waiting for Rocket Rock said, I'm gonna pick you up at four o'clock. He said we're gonna stop and get some uh at that time, they used to have the, uh, the Royal Roger chicken. Mm -hmm. Royal Roger chicken. We're going to get, me and Rocky used to get the, the chicken breast, but we're both bodybuilding. We didn't eat the skin, so we get the chicken breast and we pull the skin off and just eat the, the white meat. So that's all great. I said, I, said I, I love that chicken. So I'm sitting there, Rocky never showed up. So finally, I caught the cab all the way from uh, New Haven, Connecticut to Hartford, Connecticut, where Rocky was in the dressing room. You know, that pissed me off that, that night. I didn't say nothing to him about it. Another time, uh, we were together in Florida, and they teamed me and Rocket up. In Florida, before we won the, the championship, and uh, I probably told this story too, but since we talk about tag team, I, I repeat myself. Uh, <laughs> they told me to, uh, he was riding with a guy called Maniac Mark Lewin. And he said, he said, Mark Lewin is a heel. He said, I'm going to pick up Mark Lewin, and then you go on this side of the building, I'm going to swing around and pick you up. I said, okay, Rocket. So I'm sitting around the side of the building. Rocket never showed up. Luckily for me, luckily for me, uh, it was this van, and the van was going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Finally, a girl get out the van, and then after the girl get out the van, a wrestler by the name of Quick Draw Rick McGraw. And Rick McGraw said, Tony, why are you still here? And I said, well, I'm waiting for, for Rocky to come pick me up. He said, you mean Rocky and Minnie at Mark Lewin? And I said, yeah. He said, well, them guys gone. So they left me in the parking lot. You know, I didn't understand that then. So later on in my career, uh, I asked Rocket after our career was over, why did he do these things? Well, everybody knows that Tony Atlas had a, a drug problem, but what people probably don't know that Rocket uh, is Canadian. You know, he, he's from Canada. So what Rocket did, the guys would pull Rocket to the side and say, Rocket, you got that Tony Atlas with you? And Rocket said, yeah. Well, I wouldn't ride him around if I were you. He always carrying drugs with me. He got a lot of drugs on. If you get stopped, Rocket, they're going to deport you. You're going to go back to Canada. You're not going to be able to come back. So that made Rocket scared to pick me up. I didn't know these things then. Rocket told me all this later on after our career was all over why he pulled them something. But Rocket was a was a great guy. Rocket problem in the business for that time. Rocket, and you hear a lot of wrestlers would say this. Rocket act, act like he was white. 
self strength. Rocket figured he could do in them days the same thing as a as a white wrestler did. One of the things that Rocket felt that he could do was date white women. And he would bring them to the matches with her. You know? In fact, his last wife, Sheila, is white. I, you know, so so back in them days, that didn't go over too well with the promotion. <laughs> you know, and I'm not saying that that the wrestling is is was was racist. No, racism is totally, totally, totally different. The way the promoters saw it back in them days, the black people wouldn't like you because now they feel that you think you're too good to be with your own can. Now that you're making money, you want a white woman. Yeah, that black women's not good enough for you anymore. Plus. The white people wouldn't like you either for being with a white girl. So he said it's going to hurt you, your drawing power. The job of a black wrestler back in the, the 70s, uh, the, where the 60s, the 70s, I would say all the way up until about the, the, the early 80s, you know, around the mid 80s was all, you know, it was just wrestler. But each wrestler will be responsible for bringing his group of people to, to the show. Like when Pedro Reynolds was, was champion. A lot of Puerto Ricans came to the show to support Pedro Morelli. When Bruno Sammartino was champion, a lot of Italians came to support to support him. But this is how things was in the earlier, earlier days. Got nothing at all, nothing at all to do with racism. So me and Rocket, we kind of lock in uh, uh, a little bit. In fact, it got so bad that one night, uh, Arnold Scola had to break me and Rocket up. We got into a fist fight uh, back in the dressing room. That thing got so bad between us. Finally, Vince uh, took the belt off of us and everything. And uh, the funny thing about that, when when you look at look for matches, wrestling matches, a uh, Rocket Johnson and Tony Atlas, Rocket was getting booked in one town. Let's say they booked Rocket in Hartford, Connecticut. Well, I'm booked in Baltimore, Maryland. They would put Rocket in New York, Madison Square Garden. I'm at Bangor. I'm in Bangor, Maine. Very rarely did they put me and Rocket together. So they, they kept us separated. We were the only champion that the WWF had that was separated. All you out there, go on the computer and see how many, how many matches, how many matches, that Rocket Johnson and Tony Atlas, that y'all going to see us as a team. Y'all going to see us winning the belt. Y'all going to see us losing the belt. We was in a lot of six-man tag with Andre the Giant and stuff like that. But very, very rarely will you find a match of Rocket Johnson and Tony Atlas. <coughs> that was at the most, maybe five. So in the whole year, they probably teamed me and Rocket. We were tag team for maybe five or six times. So we never, never really got to know each other. You know, it wasn't like what people thought it was. When we got the belt, the Rocket told Vince uh, Senior, because Vince Senior said, Tony, you want to go back to uh, California? I was living in California then because I was competing in Bolivar. So you want to go back to California and get your car? Rocket said, no, he's going to be with me most of the time. So, you know, he could ride, he could ride with me. Well, that didn't work out too well because Rocket was hardly ever booked with me. <laughs> so a lot of times I'm sitting in the hotel, you know, and, and they, you know, I don't have a car because my car is in California. And, and I would say, well, how am I going to get to the get the show? So I had to get other guys, catch a ride uh, with other guys. So I was able to go out and buy myself a car myself to become independent. But before that, Rocket, me and Rocket, no, really, we didn't really, he was the only tag team partner that I didn't really team up with much. So we never really got close to each other until after our career. And I remember the last match that was in Madison Square Garden. And they put me and Rocket against somebody. And we just lost the title to Adrian Donners and uh, uh, Dick Murdoch. And believe it or not, I did not know we were going to lose that night. I didn't know. I was outside the ring with fighting with Dick Murdoch. I looked up and Rocket was being pinned. I go, what in the hell is going on? Nobody told me nothing. So I asked Rocket after the match. I said, Rocket, uh, I didn't know we were going to lose the belt tonight. And Rocket said, yeah, they told me, but they told me not to tell you. 
because they know you wouldn't go for it. That's what they told. They said we knew you would not go for it. In other words, I would not. I, I would have not lost the title. I, I wouldn't have done it. But it's a lot of stuff that 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 Vince would do to me, and not tell me. He, he didn't tell me nothing, which that used to sometimes infuriate me because I always felt, hey, why not tell me? I'm the you know I'm the other guy. He they were going to tell Rocket, and wouldn't tell me. Well, then they would come to me. They would tell me stuff about Rocket that was not true. That Rocket did this, Rocket did that, Rocket is this, and Rocket is that. Blah, 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 blah. You know, I was in one town, Rocket is in another town, but they kept us separated. So even though we the most famous tag team uh, in wrestling history because we won the title, we was uh, probably the worst tag team because we never teamed up. <laughs> I could be a tag team when you're in Baltimore, Maryland, and your partner is in Philly. You know, it don't work that way. When they put the belt on the other guys, the guys kind of work together. But Rocket was a great guy. Rocket, if I could name Rocket, give Rocket Johnson a name, it would be Malcolm X or Martin Luther King because he fought for black wrestlers to uh, get an equal shape. Uh, in the business. One of the things, uh, Thunderbolt Palazone, uh was that away. Uh, Ernie Ladd went along with the game. Rufus went along with the game. Uh, but Rocket wanted to change things. He wanted to be treated just like a white wrestler. But he was a little bit ahead of his time. You know, at that time, he was not he wanted to be in a position where it was not meant for a black person to be into. I remember when we won the title, Rocket came back to the dressing room with nobody there but me and Rocket. And I, re I reached out to shake hand. Rocket turned, had a tear in his eye, and he hugged me. He said, I thought this would never happen. He said, I can't believe it. He said, I cannot believe that they really, really let us do this. Is I can't believe that this really happened. You know, that whole night he kept saying it. He kept looking at his belt. He said, I can't believe it. I just can't believe it. Because what people don't realize, Rocket came from a very, very rough area in Canada. He had to fight and scratch for everything this man ever had. And Rocket worked a lot of territory, but he was not, you know, a big name in the wrestling business. In fact, uh, I was a bigger name, even though Rocket been in the business longer than me. But I was always in good territory that was able to build me up quicker than Rocket Johnson, you know. Uh, this was Rocket's first big break in the business where he won the title. Well, when they took the title off of me and Rocket, I remember Rocket walking back and looked Vince Jr. straight in the face. And he said, you are not going to make a jobber out of me like you did S.D. Jones. Now, S.D. Jones was my tag team partner when I first went to the uh, WWWF. Rocket was not in the territory at that time. It was just me and S.D. Jones. Where me and S.D. got along great because S.D. was an undercard guy and I was a main eventer. So S.D. knew that they were never going to put him where, where, they, where they got me. So it made things a lot easier for SD. It made things a lot easier for, uh, uh, on, the, on both of us. But, but with me and Rocket, we were both top stars. And we knew that eventually they're going to get rid of one of us. So what two top stars, no matter if they're Black, Italian, Puerto Rican, they're going to try to get rid of the other one. So the business was fixed. So they put you against each other. You know, people ask me, say, Tony, uh, you ever had any problem with anybody in the business? Everybody in the wrestling business that I had a problem with was black. Because the only person place that I could take is another black person place. The only person that could take my place was another black wrestler. When one black wrestler left, they replaced that black wrestler with another black wrestler. You know, same thing if you were Native American. Same thing if you was oriented. When people up here in the Northeast stop and think about it, of all the great wrestlers that are uh, Native American wrestlers that have wrestled, 
How in the world could Chief Jay Strongbow be on top for so long? <laughs> you know, this guy was nanny that was 100, 185 years of age, maybe 200. <laughs> Freaking Chief, Chief was 200 years old. <laughs> Out there throwing people around. You know, you had to give Chief, oh, you that karate chop. Chief would start his bad chop. He'd do the little dance. Then he'd get tired. And he, would, he wouldn't lay down on the mat. He would just sit on the mat. At, at, at the restaurant, the guy would do everything. And Chief, Chief would just be sitting there like, and then all of a sudden, Chief was all shaking. Come up, do a little dance, give the guy a couple of chops, pin it one, two, three, the match over. Chief, when he left, I love Chief. When he left, I think Chief was like me. He had about three or four moves left. And none like, of them. My grandmother's favorite was Chief J. Chief J. But, but nobody knew any other Native American. And Wahoo McDaniel, my, outside of Tatanka, I think he was one of the best. <laughs> wrestler, not Native American wrestler, but one of the greatest wrestlers in the business, you know, outside of Tatanka, who came along later. But Tatanka only got his break because Chief was in the ring no more. If Chief was still wrestling, when Tatanka came in, he would have never got that position. And it, it was the same thing uh, with Puerto Rican wrestler. When Pedro Morales was the top Puerto Rican wrestler, Johnny Ross, who I always thought was the best Puerto Rican wrestler, him and Carlos Colon, that you know, was, was excellent. But nowhere in the world were they going to allow them to override Pedro. Pedro was the, the top Puerto Rican wrestler. You know, Bruno Sammartino was the best uh, Italian wrestler. So Dominic DiNucci and Mario Mancini and all the other Italians, they had to come in underneath Bruno. And that's just how the, the business was was uh was was orchestrated back then, but Vince McMahon got the idea to put two top black wrestlers. It worked. It would have worked out a lot greater if the office had gave us the same opportunity as they gave uh that they gave the other wrestlers. Now another guy, Skip Young, when I was in World Class Championship Wrestling down in Texas, this was uh uh with uh. uh with the Von Erichs, uh, took it around that. Now me and Skip, you know, we won the belt together, we traveled together, and that tag team worked out great. I would say my best tag team partner, my very, very best of all time, I talked to this guy at least twice a month, was with Tommy Wildfire Rich. For four years, we dominated it. I mean, everywhere they put me and Tommy, we sold the billet out. Tommy, Tommy Rich was like wildfire. I was wrestling that time as Black Atlas. And the reason they put me on the mask, because I started with Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling, where George Scott decided that he wanted to put me on the mask to get experience. And then once I get experience, they're going to unmask me, and I'm going to come back as Tony Atlas. What happened was they go to they brought in Tommy Wildfire Rich from Tennessee to be a jobber. Now, for those that don't know the wrestling term, a jobber means a loser, a guy that lose to other wrestler, let other wrestler be the rule gonna be a jobber. Where Abdullah the butcher had just got back from Japan and they had to feed him. What I mean by feed him, give him win after win after win after win out the way to build him up. That to build Abdullah back up. Because Abdullah would wrestle six months in the States and six months in Japan. He didn't stay in no place no longer than uh, six months. I asked him one time why did he do that? He said he said after six months they start asking once you get over, they start asking you to put other guys over. You know, once you get popular, they want you to lose to other guys to make them popular. Where Give Abdullah him the rub. Huh? Give him the rub. Yeah, give him the rub. That's right. Where Abdullah <laughs> Didn't want to do that. Abdullah didn't want to put Abdullah over. So what Abdullah would do, just when they asked him to do that first job, he would leave. So, well, you know, I, I would love to do it, but I'm going to go to Japan. You know, I'm going to go to Japan. So, <laughs> <laughs> so he'd slip out. So then every time they bring him back, they had to build him up again. So anyway, they wanted Tommy Rich to go all around the loop with uh, Abdullah the Butcher. Well, when Tommy came out that it was at the Atlanta City Auditorium in Atlanta, Georgia. 
I think the building belonged to the college now. Jim Barnett had a chance to buy the building out here, but he refused. So I think the college bought it for their drama class or, or something like that. The, the Atlantic City Auditorium. But anyway, Tommy came out that door, and my goodness, every woman in the place just went ape. It was, oh my, no, Larry had no idea. I mean, it was, you know, oh, Tommy, oh, they just going crazy. Oh, Southern Bell. Yes, they was going, they was ringing their bell for Tommy, I'll tell you that. <laughs> they was ringing more than bells for old Tommy. <laughs> Boy, I'm telling you, that Tommy had every woman in the place just pulling their hair out by the root. They never, because most rats were big, mean, ugly looking guys. <laughs> That's a wrestler right there, right there. That's what that's what's wrestling. We were not pretty boy. You got somebody that looked halfway decent. You know, if you look, if you was a slightly butter looking than Frankenstein, you was considered a pretty boy. Like we used to call Ric Flair a pretty boy. Remember? <laughs> he was to us, he was a pretty boy. <laughs> Flair was not Flair was not ugly. You know, Rick and Steamboat, pretty boy. Uh, Brett the Hitman how a heart. Pretty boy. We used to call him that on the interview, you know. Jesse ran to along the guy. Yeah, look at your pretty boy, you know. Little pretty boy, we used to call him. But because they were nice looking men, you know. But anyway, when Tommy got that ring, Abdullah started beating him up. And Abdullah got juice on Tommy. Tommy had light blonde hair. So that blonde hair turned solid red. Red. I mean, I mean, it was red, red, red. All the blood filled his head up. The Abdullah were beating on him, beating on him. So Ole Anderson, who was the booker at that time, part of the Minnesota Record Crew, Ole and Gene Anderson, Ole came by the dressing room. I just got through wrestling. I took, I would take my boots off. I took my mask off, and Ole said, "Hey kid, put your mask back on. Get on out there and run that dude out the ring." So I put my mask on and ran out. But the mask, people don't know, got a string in the back where you tie. So I forgot to tie. Can you imagine Tony Atlas not remembering something? <laughs> so anyway, make a long story short, I ran down to the ring. I pushed the crowd away. Everybody, hey, here come Black Atlas. Here come Black Atlas. So they, 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 they led the way, you know. But the people was going to the ring to beat up Abdullah. So they wanted me to go there to stop the fans for jumping on Abdullah, because they were, back in those days, you get what called a radical. People really mm -hmm. believed what they were seeing was oh, for yeah. real. And they were so much in love with Tommy, they wanted to kill this big old 450-pound guy from Sudan, wherever you'd say he was from, Sudan, Georgia. Or Sudan, Alabama. Or Sudan, Canada. Sudan, Canada. Where he's from, he's from Canada. But anyway, they believe he was from Sudan. They believe he was really trying to kill Tommy Wildfire Rip. So I ran in the ring. Abdul was shaking like a leaf. Oh, I'm glad you're here. Give me a slam. Now, Abdul had never been slammed before in his life. So I picked up Abdul because, because it was so big. When I take him over the slam, my mask came out. Well, yeah. I, well, I had a big afro back then. <laughs> so imagine you got the mask like this, and as soon as that mask came off, poof. Hair <laughs> just shot here. I remember looking at one lady in order with my hair. When that mask came out, the hair shot out. The hair, the hair went poof, and the lady go. <laughs> she, she didn't know. She didn't know what the hell was on my head. This big old, big old afro, yeah, yeah big old little mushroom out there. So anyway, I slammed the mask came off. The next day, Ola said, "Well, you might really leave the mask off." Me and Tom, we team up. We try to call ourselves T and T. T for Tony, T for Tommy. And that and that was named our team was uh, T and T. And me and Tommy, we wrestled all around Georgia, Ohio, West Virginia. We even go up to Tennessee. We worked for Nick Goulders one time. Nick, Nick Goulders brought, took out to the Waffle House, got us a steak back then. You get a, a, a steak and egg a breakfast for six bucks back in the day. You know, in the seventies, and uh, now I think it's about fifteen, sixteen dollars. Not at the Waffle House. Waffle House. I'm not that down there. Not at the Waffle House. Two fifty for everything. Really? No. <laughs> but it was the Waffle House. So Nick Gooders didn't want to pay us. So Thomas said, "Hey, Nick, ain't you gonna pay us?" Nick Gooders said, "Well, I bought y'all steak dinner 
what more you want? I, I, I let you win. The, I put you over in the ring. You made you look like superstars in the ring. Bought you a nice steak dinner. And you want to get paid too? Tommy Rich, this is how Tommy talk. Well there, Nick. I tell you what, there, good buddy. You just give me my you give me my pay and I give you your six dollars back. So Nick, you know, he ended up paying me me and Tommy. But but we roll up and down the road, we fought together. We you know, we were like brothers. I, I would say one of the closest people to me. Uh, one of them, not, not the only one, Cartito Santana and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat are very, very close to me. In fact, I got a text from uh, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat around Christmas time. And uh, Ricky want to thank me for the drawing that I did of him. And he said, Tony, you know, there's not many of us guys left that wrestle in the 70s. And it made me kind of be a little bit thankful that, uh, that uh, I, I'm uh stayed here i teamed up with dusty rose uh a couple of times before you get into tony i got a question yes did sir. you ever get your car back from california no i heard the story that good thing you <laughs> brought that up larry good thing you brought that up this is what happened i was living with a woman down there and uh i just say this woman money all the time and uh, y'all know I got this crazy shoe fetish. Well, I used to pay her $1,000 a week to walk on me. This woman got 52. <laughs> no, Larry, you built wrong. <laughs> you got the, no, you got the wrong equipment, Larry. No, the beer won't help. The beer, no, that ain't going to help you, Larry, Larry. <laughs> Now, if you had done that to Pat Palliser, <laughs> you would have had a job. <laughs> yeah, you you be definitely there'd be no Huff Hogan. There'd be Larry. He'll be <laughs> But anyway, my car was in Los Angeles and I went down there one day and uh she was messing around on me. I got mad, I broke up with her, and that when I took it, had my car shipped back uh to New York. I had a 19, at that time, it was a 1980 Corvette Steamway. You know? Yeah. Now, this was an unusual Steamway uh, because it was solid white. Now, most Steamways uh, back then had red interior. I had burgundy interior because I bought it off the showroom floor. It was a, it was the only, the guy said, none of them got burgundy. He said, this is the only one that they made with burgundy interior. I said, well, then I want it because it was a, for a showcase car. Mm -hmm. It was not meant, you know, yeah. Yeah, to oh, sell yeah. another car. So, so I had to pay a little extra for it, but just to give y'all an example of how times have changed over the year. I paid fifteen thousand dollars in nineteen eighty. <laughs> fifteen thousand for a Corvette. Yeah. Fifteen thousand yeah. for a Corvette. In nineteen seventy-seven, I paid fifteen thousand for what well, we're taxing it. They were like twelve thousand for a Lincoln Town Car with the porthole and the mother and the stereo and the eight track and. You know, all the works, you know, electric wonder, power stern, you know, everything. Twelve thousand dollars. You know, that things you know, prices were us wrestlers, we kind of screwed ourselves up bad because we got into it where things were reasonable, where things were were, were cheap. You know, now a Corvette probably costs you sixty thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars for that same car. Not to change on it, you accept the body style. That's all they they may put a few more things, little gadgets here and there, you know. But I got my car back from LA and I had it shipped to our New York to SD Jones uh, house. And then eventually I got rid of it because, you know, I, I, I was working in Northeast now and they had potholes, you know, a Pennsylvania turnpike was like driving through. Uh, what is a place where they got dropped bombs at? Well, like driving through a bump somewhere with people, you know, potholes like this, brother. Rhode Island. Rhode Island. <laughs> like, it's still like that, you know. I mean, and it would tear your car all to pieces. So and I said, and it was a rear wheel drive. Yeah, on top of it. In the winter time, it, it was absolutely no freaking good in the winter. So, so I, I kind of got rid of got rid of that car. But um, another guy that I used to uh, team up with. Why I got time to uh, uh, talk about him. Junkyard Dog. Junkyard Dog. 
Junkyard Dog, I first met him, he was wrestling at Big Daddy in Knoxville, Tennessee. I didn't see Dog no more until I went to Louisiana. And I was with a dog, me and him, we tag, we tag team together uh, in Louisiana a little bit. And uh, Dog really got his real, as all all y'all know, got his real break when he went to the... Uh, but he was already on his downside. He was at his best in Mid-South. Best yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, because when he got to uh, the difference between Dog wrestling in Mid-South, and we got to the uh, the W uh, WF, and I've said this before, and I said some things about Vince McMahon that I regret because Vince is not a bad guy. He's really, really, really not. But Vince think that none of us guys need guidance. See, Dog was like me in one way. We were what we call a, a jock. Now, the people that was raised up in sports, we used to a coach kicking our asses, you know, jumping on us when we do wrong, correcting us and being, you know, riding our butt. We, that's what me and Dog, Dog played pro football. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I was an amateur wrestler, you know, amateur boxer. Uh, the, all we have somebody hang their foot in my butt to make me, to accelerate me, you know. I had to have that acceleration, you know. Some, you know, I have to get. I have to have that push, you know, because that when you used to coaches. That's why Bill Belichick uh, is such a uh, successful coach because uh, he he really gets in there and push push you to your to make you do your best. Uh, the coach that just passed away there, uh, uh, he just passed away. Uh, John Madden. Oh, John Madden. Yeah, John Madden. You know, he was one of them old school coaches that would get in your face. Come on, you're going to do it. Come on, you're going to do it. Get on out there, team. Come on, team. Come on. And that that inspires you. That was Bill Watts. And that's why Dog was at his very, very best. Because Bill Watts brought out the best in JYD. Turn the page. Go to WWE. I don't know what it's like now. Triple H may be totally, totally different. I hope so anyway. But with Vince McMahon Jr., he don't motivate you. He figured he hired you to do a job. You should be professional enough by the time you get to him to know what you need to do. So if you screw up, Vince won't say nothing. He won't say a word to you. You don't know you screwing up. He won't say nothing. He don't get in your face. Come on, Tony. Like Ole Anderson. One time I screwed up in a match. He only get in my face. You stupid piece of horse crap. You, you got shit for brain. You got drizzling shit for brain. You dumb ass crap. You dummy. Blah, 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 blah. If you ever do that again, I'm going to fire you. But before I fire you, I'm going to whoop your black ass. Now, next time you get out there and you do what I ask you to do, you stupid piece of crap, you, that was only. That what I was used to. That what dog was used to. That what every athlete from the 60s and 70s were used to. We were not used to screwing up and seeing the boss and the boss said, hey, how you doing? Brother, I just missed two shows. <laughs> I just got drunk and tore up a freaking hotel room, and you got nothing <laughs> to say to me. <laughs> he won't tell you nothing. Yeah, you were looking to get it. You were, and yeah, yeah, yeah. We, all, you know, we were looking for him. Hey, so we, after a while, you started figuring you could do things and get away with it. That's what you thinking until you get home, and you got that. You get a note that says your service is no longer needed. That's why so many guys screwed up with Vince. Vince would not tell you if you fucking up or not. Excuse my language, you know. But he won't tell you. Whereas when Jim Barnett would tell you, you know, Jim Barnett, he, he was gay, not making fun of gay people, but everybody loved the way Jim talked because he just had a classic way of talking, you know. Tony, my boy. Everybody, my boy. 
I didn't like that match. You should have done this, my boy. Now, Tony, you know you can do better than what you did, my boy. That that would, you know, jump on that. But he would say something. You were not a big, strong guy. He couldn't whoop your butt or nothing. But if you screwed up, Jim Barnett would come to you at that moment and tell you where you messed up at. Vince won't do that. You're on your own with him. So you got to have all your, your, your T's crossed, all your I's dotted before you go there. Before you get there. And you got to realize that, that you are responsible for yourself once you get there. And if you do something wrong, you will never know it. I remember one time Vince fired me. I said, Vince, you going to fire me for that little bit? No. What you did, it been, what you say, mountain. It been, yeah, it been mountain. He, he asked it. Right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. He asked it. <laughs> you, you're screwing up. And all Vince is doing is marking it down. Yeah. You get a little check beside your name every time you fucked up. But you don't know you're being, he don't know he's doing this. Trying to, he gets so many checks by now. We don't gotta let that Tony go. But if he says something, the first time there'll be no more checks. But you know, if it's kind of like if I walk up to you and punch you in the face, you don't say nothing. I figure I could do it again. You didn't say nothing the first time, so I punch you again. That's how Vince make make guys felt. And guys like me and, and JYD. And guys that have always have hard-nosed coaches and, and stuff of that nature, uh, we didn't uh, perform that well, uh, you know, uh, with uh, with Vince. Because we were, you know, not that Vince is a bad guy. Don't get me wrong. You know, he's a hell of a businessman. But uh, we were more used to a different type of uh, environment, guys like me and JYD and all of us guys. We were used to somebody getting on getting on my butt. That's why my wife, now this picture here, this is the first drawing that I did of my wife. Right here. I painted that picture of my wife in 1990. So this is an old painting that I did of my wife years ago. Now my wife <coughs> was kind of like old Anderson with tits. And much prettier. And much prettier. <laughs> and nicer feet. See them nice feet? But anyway, make a long story short, my wife, back in my old drug days, my wife came up to me and said, look, I'm going to give you an ultimatum. Either you or them or that drug got to leave my house. She put her foot down. She said, I'm not going to have that in my house. She said, you're not going to sit around smoking pot. You're going to find yourself a job and you're going to help me with these bills or you can leave. So in Maine, 20 below zero, no money in my pocket, the pot got to go, not me. I'm not going to go out and, get, and freeze my butt off to smoke a joint. So a lot of stuff, she would put her foot down. Larry know Monica. He, he know how she is. She right now, she the same way now. She's in the hospital. I just left her in the hospital. She the same way now. If, if I'm doing something that she don't like, she would say something right then and there. She wouldn't put up with it, you know? And that's a good woman. So all you guys out there, you got a woman that put her foot down and won't let you make a fool out of yourself, won't make you destroy yourself, will not let you destroy what y'all built together. Thank that woman. That's a good woman. That's a good woman. A woman that lay back and let you do what the hell you want. Not only you hurt yourself, you also hurting her, you hurt your family, you, and you hurt your country because you're not, you're not being productive. You're not productive for yourself, your family, or the country. But anyway, one of my wrestlers I used to wrestle with, I hope I have time to, to talk about it, was uh, Kevin Sullivan. The first time I met Kevin Sullivan was in 1974-75 in Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. And Kevin Sullivan... He wasn't left in there. Oh, he wasn't? No, I got to show you a picture of him. He changed his physique quite a few times. Well, that, now, you, now, I ain't trying to take no credit, but I am going to take some credit. Kevin Sullivan, did, he was not a bodybuilder then. Didn't have all the muscle. He was just a thick, not from just a thick kid. And the first time I lay eyes on was in Raleigh. No, it was in Norfolk, Virginia. And Kevin was walking around the building. And I was driving with Klondike Bill and Klondike said, "If that guy, if that guy was was six feet tall, he'd be world champion. 
He said, look at the bill on that guy. He was like a little bulldog, like a bulldog. So I was, when me and Kevin teamed up, and you ask Kevin, Kevin can tell you this too. I got start, Kevin started in bodybuilding. Tony Atlas got Kevin Sullivan started in bodybuilding. He started working at the gym with me, going to the gym. Then sure enough, Kevin went to Tennessee and he won Mr. Tennessee Bodybuilding Championship. And then he just kept working out, working out, getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Me and Kevin, uh, used to train not just in the gym. There's tapes of me and Kevin used to go to high schools and we work out with the track team. They, I, I saw a tape of me and Kevin doing push-ups and running with the with the track star. So, so they they want Bill Watts put us together mm -hmm. and we're going to rest, we're going to beat the Russians for the belt. And that was Alvin Koloff and Alexis Smirnoff. And me and Kevin, we won the belt uh, off of off of them became uh, tag team champions. And Kevin, will, right now, is one of my best friends. I love Kevin Sullivan to death. A hell of a street fighter. You know, you don't want to get in a fight with, with Sullivan. He's one of them type guys that if you fight him, you better bring a lunch. <laughs> if you fight Kevin Sullivan back in the old days, you better bring a lunch. But me and him, we team up a lot. Another guy, Johnny Rubberman Walker, better known as Mr. Wrestling number two. He was another a great tag team partner. Uh, that I had. And just recently, I was searching the internet like most people do, and I saw a tape of me and Hacksaw Butch Reed. Now, I might be getting old, Larry, but I don't even remember wrestling with him. <laughs> I don't. I saw another tape of me wrestling against uh, uh, Stan Hansen. I don't even remember wrestling Stan Hansen. See, back in the older days, there's 365 days in a year. We used to wrestle 355 days a year. So in one year, I had 365 matches. Well, and sometimes, it's right, because sometimes we did a double shot. Or you so, had to do two in one show. Two, if, when it comes to TV, Back in the old days, the, the, the match there was squash matches. The, the TV match only lasts about two, about five minutes. So I must have had, in my first year, over 500 matches in one year. We, there was no time off. We lived on the road. We lived on the road. We lived on our cars and hotel, cars and hotel, cars and hotel. We knew more about each other than we knew about our wives. Because if, if, if Larry was in the 70s, I would be with Larry more than I would be with Monica. That's why the hardest thing in the world, uh, I wish sometimes that WWE or one of these big wrestling companies would do something for the wives of wrestlers. Because them are the true heroes, not the guy you see all the time, but it's that woman that behind this guy that, that washes his clothes and do this for him and do that for him and, 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 and stay up with the kids and set lonely, lonely nights all along waiting for her husband and all the communication that you have with your uh, with your husband is over the phone. You know, when Bruce and Brody got, I know I'm already talking about that, when Bruce and Brody got stabbed, I look at all the time that Brody was somewhere else away from his kids and away from his wife and all them days that he could have been with his wife and family and he could never get that back. Once they took his life in Puerto Rico, you know, that, that was it. And I hear his son say on the dark side of the ring, everybody got a bruiser Brody story but me. He didn't know his own father. When my daughter was, was young, <clears throat> I used to come home sometimes after I'd been on the road, you know, for a couple of weeks. I hadn't seen my daughter in a couple of weeks. My wife is pregnant. My wife, when she had a baby, she had to go back to Alabama to have the baby because she didn't want to be alone, you know, in the house pregnant. And I had to leave this pregnant woman by herself in the house night at night. I used to leave on Monday. Monday, we wrestled in Charlotte, North Carolina. Tuesday, I drove to Raleigh, North Carolina. We wrestled in Raleigh. Then we stay over in Raleigh, North Carolina, and do TV on Wednesday in Raleigh. The next day, you go to Norfolk. The next day, you go to Richmond. After Richmond, you went to probably Roanoke. After Roanoke, you went to Greensboro. <laughs> and then Monday, 
You're back in Charlotte. She saw me one day a week. My first wife, her name was Joyce. She saw me one day a week. She said, don't even feel like she married to me. She said, I saw more of you when I, was, when I wasn't with you. You know, once she had a baby, she couldn't travel with me with the baby. But, but we was always, always on the road. We drove everywhere. Uh, you know, they have what they call territory. You know, you didn't fly all over the place. You know, you, you know, most of our time was, was spent in cars um, uh, back in the day. But I had a lot of great tag team partners over the years. Kevin Solomon, me and Thunderbolt Patterson, we teamed up uh, a lot in Georgia Championship Wrestling. Uh, How about Johnny Weaver? Johnny Weaver was not really my tag team partner. I teamed up with him a lot. He was more of my mentor. See, in the olden days, they would put an experienced wrestler with an inexperienced wrestler. And Johnny uh, was right up down the road chewing his red man, the Chattanooga chew tobacco. And he would tell me all about the old time wrestler, Eric the Red, Joe LaDuke, and, and all these guys, Keller Kowalski, Carl Gott, tell me how tough they was. And the, the big O, the big O is uh, uh, Randy Orton Sr., which is, uh, 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 I mean, Bob Orton Sr., which is Randy Orton's grandfather. Now, Randy Orton's grandfather, he's called him the Big O. And I think he wrestled in Madison Square in New York a while, but under uh, another name, not under, under Orton. But he's called him the Big O. But, but I hear stories about all these guys, Haystack, Calhoun, and uh, all, all this and that stuff. And uh, that's how we learned the business. We were trained in the cars. You know, they didn't have training schools back then. I, I hear some guys say, oh, you're the deal. What about this? What about that? There wasn't that many training schools. I mean, I didn't go to no training school. Mid-Atlantic didn't have one. They had a guy down in Florida that was training guys, a, a Japanese guy. Hiro Matsuda? Yeah, Hiro Matsuda. He was training a, a few people. But but wrestling school didn't really get started until the monster factor. And I know a guy called me on that, but I know I'm right because I know a lot of wrestlers never saw the inside of a of a wrestler. The wrestlers would train you. It was like on-the-job training. You would go down to the YMCA. I, I got trained on a mat. I didn't get in the ring. In my day, you had to earn the right to be in that ring. I had to go to every show. Every show I had to go to. Then I had to help put up the ring. I had to tear down the ring. You had to earn the right to be in that ring. And then once you step in that ring, it means more. Now you're in the ring right away, so it don't mean nothing to you to be in that, you know? It's like your parents giving you a car instead of having to earn it to buy it. Exactly. Like Larry said, it's like, you know, if your parents buy you something and, and, and you didn't contribute to it, you're going to show a lot less appreciation for the car because you didn't have to do any work for it. And, you know, it, it, was, it was just given to, uh, 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 given to you. But, but, yeah, everything you got in this business, you have to earn. Just to give you an example of how the business was, we was in Augusta, Georgia, Augusta, Georgia, and I was tag team with Thunderbolt Patterson, and we we're going to wrestle against the Minnesota Wrecking Crew, Gene and Ole Anderson, and they were sitting around discussing what they're going to do in the match. Well, I stood up. I've been wrestling every night for three years, so I jumped up. I said, hey! I got an idea. Why don't we do? And it, the dress room got so quiet, you can hear a rat piss on cotton. <laughs> you can hear a rat piss on cotton. That's how quiet the dress room is that got. A, is that a southern saying? That's that, 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 yeah, that, 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 that's how a southern talk where I come from. <laughs> so anyway, they grabbed my chair and they picked me up while I was still sitting in the chair and set my chair in the corner facing the wall. And there's a kid. You ain't been around this business long enough to give any advice to anyone. If you ain't been in the business for at least six years, you had no say so. It would be dis disrespectful. My job was to learn. So what they would do, they would put an older wrestler to travel with a younger wrestler. When I went to Georgia, and started wrestling, uh, and I started traveling with Tommy Wildfire Rich. And me and Tommy, we were about the same age. So when we drove up, Ole Anderson said, I thought you were going to ride with wrestling too. Be with Johnny. I said, no, I'm going to ride with uh, Tommy. 
He said, that's great. The blind leading the blind. <laughs> in other words, there ain't a damn thing that I could learn from Tommy, and there ain't nothing that Tommy could learn from me. We couldn't teach each other. So they wouldn't pair you up that way. They would always make sure that you had a, a veteran with a rookie. And that only happened by mistake because the Abdullah had to get out of the mat, out of, had to get out of the ring. Had to get out of the ring. Yeah. Otherwise, otherwise Tommy, they would have just beat up Tommy and sent him back to Tennessee. Mm -hmm. But Oda was a businessman. He was a businessman. And Oda decided, no, this is this is gonna make us money. And we did. You know, Barnett, you say on time, Tommy Rich, oh my boy, Tommy Rich and Tony Atlas, they made me so much money, so much money. But that's how he just talked, you know. And we did. I mean, we sold out everything. We was known as one of the hardest tag teams. And then later on, of course, as y'all know, they made Tommy uh, NWA world champion. He didn't keep the belt long, but at least he, he did get the belt. Uh, I would love to see Tommy being inducted in the WWE Hall of Fame, I think it is well deserved. You know, here's a guy that been wrestling for almost 50 years. And, you know, he's a senior citizen like me, but just like me, Tommy still perform around the world. He still gets into the range. If you ever meet him, he's a wonderful, good old country boy. You know, just a great individual, kind of like old old Larry here. He, Don't you know, put me up there with him. Come on. Well, you're not old. Not no, yet. I meant the fact that... You've been around just as long, Larry. You, yeah, I, just I mean, feel you, that way. you're an old gray fox just like me, you know? Yeah, you're getting great. I'm getting great. You're, get, you're going to get there. I mean, you're 50 now. You got, yeah. You're going to catch up. But the rest of it, if you want to ask me, yeah, make, make fun of me now. <laughs> Go ahead. Now, I, you think I didn't see that, did you? You saw him show me his hair. He know I ain't got a damn lick of hair up on that head there. And there's no gray in him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, at least you got it. I don't care if it was purple. You still got it. <laughs> but but the rest of it have been very, very uh, good for me. I don't know how much time I got left. To talk on it, a minute and a half. Now, what can Tony Atlas talk about in a minute and a half? In fact, Tony don't really have anything to say in a minute and a half. I need like an hour and a half for what I got to say. But I want to thank all you wrestling fans out there. Now, I'm going to be doing another interview that coming up. Larry told me, he said, Tony, you have to talk about something that is controversy. And uh, I was going to talk about my uh, sex life. But that's only 30 seconds, so... <laughs> 30 seconds at a time. 30 seconds. But you've done it more than once. Yeah, I got to... If I add, add it all together, I'll probably get a minute and a half out of it, you know? But 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 there's very few things that I could talk about in a minute and a half. But we, as usual, I want to thank Marty and the Pharaoh for giving me this this platform to talk to you fans. And fans, please, if anything I say you don't like or if I'm boring as crap, let me know. I know how to lightening up and everything. I do what Harley Race, but I grabbed Harley Race in that headlock. Harley Race said backdrop. I threw Harley Race in, went to give him the backdrop. Harley Race went over to take the backdrop. He grabbed my trunk, pulled him down to my knees. I got scared. I pulled my trunk right back up. I grabbed Harley back in the headlock. I said, Harley, how come you pull my trunks down in the ring like that? Harley said, I want the people to see the dark side of the moon. <laughs> Another time, Sweet Hansel had me in the headlock. He was just squeezing and squeezing. And all of a sudden, Sweet looked down to me. He said, he said hey, kid, I hear about squeezing a black head, but this is ridiculous. <laughs> you know, so us guys, what was so great about wrestling, we took, we didn't take life so seriously. We didn't take what we say to each other so seriously. You know, uh, you could joke about race. You could joke about sexuality. You could joke about how ugly your kids are. You know, everybody thinks they got pretty kids. But like Ox Baker, we out with Ox Baker one time, you know, at uh, Buffalo, what was that? Hooters. Hooters, okay. Well, Hooters, and his kids started crying. So, you know, Ox Baker got this big handlebar mustache and the eyebrows that turned up, you know, um, six foot eight, you know, walking through 300 pounds. Hey, lady! Shut that damn old ugly kid of yours up. If I had an ugly kid like that, I wouldn't let him talk. But that's how the heels were because they would say these things to the fans. You know, Ox Baker would look over and say, hey, is your mother as ugly as your kid? But you know, everybody think the kids is ugly. We got to wrap it up, guys. Wrap it up.
Now, do me a favor, Tony. Spin this way. Put your head back. No, back. There we go. Let's take a look at that picture. We're heading out for the day. Just remember, Tuesdays with Tony, when wrestling was real.